It's not a bad idea, right? <laughs> okay. Father, thank you uh, that you are here, that you're good, that you're with us. You are with us in our rejoicing. You are with us in our mourning. And um, I'm just aware that Paul, our brother, is so free today. <laughs> he is... He's free. <laughs> no more doubts. No more pain. Uh, he's free. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, that didn't calm me down at all. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, hey, uh, friends, you know, this sudden loss of our pastor, of, of Paul, has left uh, a number of us um, reeling. So even though we know where he is and we can rejoice in that, and I hope Wednesday we get to tell some of the fun, beautiful stories of what some of our little ones have been saying about Pastor Paul now. Oh, he's, now he's with Jesus. I mean, it's just so beautiful. Out of the mouths of babes, the things that we're hearing from our, from our kids that remind us um, but in this kind of season, in these times, it really causes me, causes us to slow down a little bit um, and maybe ask some of those hard questions about our own lives. And in fact, some of us, um, this, this sudden loss might have some of us looking at how we're living our life and what we're spending our time on. Like, where have I put my hope? Where am I investing my time, my energy, my finances, where is all that stuff going and what difference will it make? And a, a loss like this can be a recalibration and lots of us are asking really, really good questions. And so like I said earlier, this morning's message, it's not going to be a funeral for Paul, that's going to be this afternoon. But what I do want to do in this moment, in this opportunity is for us to, to draw back and to look at the bigger picture and, and look at how we frame suffering and loss in each of our own lives. So um, not just this sad event of, of losing Paul, but, but a, a framework. We wanna, I want to leave us with a framework of how followers of Jesus are invited to deal with the losses in our lives and do it in a way that might actually be healthy and helpful. So um, we have indeed experienced a tremendous loss and so what do we do? Now, from a biblical perspective, loss is not something that we just go, hey, well, I'm just going to recover from that. And so I want to be real clear on the message this morning. This message is not about how with this loss of Paul or a loss in your own life, how you can get back to being as happy as you can be as soon as possible every time something bad happens. That's not the message, okay? Um, yes, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be the guy to do that message, but... Um, but, you know, when we experience loss, uh, some of us, <clears throat> maybe me, probably me, um, the response is we just want to get over this thing, right? We just want to, okay, what do I got to do to get over this thing? Um, we don't really want to enter into mourning or grieving. And I'm not suggesting that we all just give in to fear anytime there's loss or tragedy in our life and we're just paralyzed. But I think moments like this, when we experience loss, we, we finally have an opportunity to have a perspective that might not be a bad idea for us to stay in for a while. Because loss, in the big scheme of things, loss is something that needs to be set right. And the Bible's word for that is to be redeemed, to be redeemed. And, and scripture says that God is going to do that someday. 
It will be someday. It's coming. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But the day is going to come when God will set all things right. And so until then, we need to find a way to live and to choose life in a world that is constantly battered by storms of loss. See, sooner or later, uh, that storm or a storm is going to hit every one of our lives. Maybe um, somebody you love hurts you and the relationship dies. Or, Or maybe you love someone and they die, like I know have happened to some of our couples here, some of our parents. Maybe for you, the storm involves a marriage that's turned out to be nothing like you had hoped for. Maybe even it's a marriage that has ended in enormous pain. And if you've been around here, you know that both Heidi and I have each been through that. For some of us, the loss looks like something where you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you or the loved one that you're with, "Um, I'm sorry, I have some bad news. And the health that, that you've always taken for granted is suddenly fragile. For some of us, that loss involves the death of, of a dream, dreams that maybe you've cherished for many, many years, and then not only have those dreams not come true, but maybe you've even recently begun to realize that they probably won't. See, this, the storm of loss, it hits everyone who walks through this troubled world. And in the time that we have left this morning, I want to walk through a few questions that human beings have been asking for a long time, and I want to look at what the Bible says about loss and suffering and living through storms, and this won't be like the everything you need to know. <laughs> um, we don't have time, and I'd be the wrong guy for that one too, but um, we're going to look at a few of those questions. And the first question that I want to pose is one that often occurs first when something like a loss or a tragedy happens, and a lot of us wrestle with this question when loss happens, and the question is, why me, right? Why me? Why am I, especially when that happens to us, right? Why am I the one going through this? Was I singled out somehow and am I being punished? Did I do something? Um, Or in our particular situation with Pastor Paul, why Paul? Why did Paul and Mary have to go through this? Now, give me a moment here. Don't walk out before I finish this thought or you'll misunderstand where I'm going here, okay? So um, sometimes in the past, when I have asked, why me? I know that it's a tricky one because sometimes, sometimes I may bring suffering on myself. Not all the time, maybe not even most of the time, but sometimes. Um, let's, let's see a show of hands on this. How many of you have ever gotten, ever gotten a speeding ticket? Your sins are forgiven. Oh, sorry. No, that wasn't this part. Okay. <clears throat> all right. Um, some of us, like, really waved our hands high. This is a fast church, by the way. Holy cow. That's a high percentage there. Um, now, here's the follow-up question. How many of you were actually speeding at the time that you got the ticket, right? Uh-huh. Okay. And probably a lot of us that have been speeding and should have gotten a ticket didn't get a ticket. Um, by the way, I know this because I watch how some of you drive out of the parking lot here, okay? <clears throat> so, the point is that there are some sufferings that we bring on ourselves. Like if we eat poorly or we smoke and sit around long enough without exercising, we're likely to have, you know, health problems, right? Um, Or, or more difficult, if someone's abusive, they're probably going to end up being very lonely. That's the consequence, right? So, So hear this. Sometimes, sometimes I bring suffering on myself 
Um, but sometimes, maybe most of the time, some of the deepest and hardest losses involve a suffering that comes to us for no apparent reason at all. Right? Paul didn't smoke, um, yet he had lung cancer. And this whole idea is the hard one because sometimes, maybe most of the time, some of the deepest and hardest losses involve suffering that comes for no apparent reason at all. And part of why I think this wounds us so much and is so painful is that we live with this illusion in our lives of control. Because I know for me, somewhere inside of me, I believe this lie that says something like, you know, if I could just figure it out, if I could be smart and clever and strong and good enough, or if I could get the right seatbelts and airbags adjusted perfectly, then, then I could make life accident-proof, loss-proof, and suffering-proof. And even then, uh, sometimes out of the blue, sometimes disease or disaster or disappointment come, and we realize the truth in those moments, that, that, that on this planet, life is incredibly fragile, even for the best, the smartest, the carefulest, and the strongest of us. I love what um, the writer in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, said in the Old Testament so long ago. He wrote, a voice said, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry out? And the voice said, all flesh is like the grass. The days are like a flower in the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. Right? Sometimes you look at these fields and it's, it's looking so strong, right? And maybe even the flower, the things planted think it just has control, right? It's firmly rooted. The roots have gone deep. And then comes a drought. Then comes a storm. Then comes an unexpected frost and boom, it's gone. And he's saying life is that way. Life is like that. See, for humankind, this is a fallen world. This is not the world that God intended for us. He didn't cause this. He didn't plan this. In fact, I think it's really cruel. Um, as a pastor, I've heard all kinds of things, in good intentions, said to families that have experienced losses, you know, like, well, you know, God must have needed another baritone in his choir. Um, oh, man. And, and sometimes, like, oh, yeah, we're trying to cope with why, why, why that friend is gone. I did a funeral for uh, uh, a baby that was just a few months old, and um, their family said, well, God must have needed another angel. And you know how that sounds to someone who's suffering and lost? Like, God who has everything needed, my, I'd like my baby back. <laughs> or if you've lost a parent and someone said, well, God just took him. They'd, he, well, no, I still need my dad. I still need, right? It's so, so hard because we say things that aren't even anywhere close to what's true about this God that we worship. Um, it's hard to know and understand why someone is gone, but sometimes we give destructive answers that, that we just don't even think through, and they sound like these wonderful Christian cliches. But listen, this is a fallen world, my friends, and evil and death have not yet been eliminated. So sickness and death and cancer, these are tools of the enemy. They still exist. Those are not God's will or God's plan. And making statements like that can be really hard to reconcile with the God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Like, God didn't map out, you know, Paul's life and decide ahead of time. On March 14th of 2018, just before noon, James Paul Thompson is destined to die. Like, okay? God wasn't surprised by it, but death and disease are not God's plan for us. John 10.10 10 says, 
I have come, Jesus says, I have come to bring you life and life to the full. Now, right before that, it says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So when we see something stolen, killed, or destroyed, and we go, well, God, no, 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 Jesus is pretty clear. That's not his doing. That's the enemy. And so we can be angry because this world is not as it's supposed to be yet. And let's be careful before we attribute to God the taking of someone and making it his plan. I got off a little farther than I meant on that one. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so, let me bring us back to the why me question. Why me sometimes has something to do with the fallen world that we live in and with the enemy that, that is in our story. God didn't will it or plan it. We live in a fallen world still. And one day, all things will be made new and all things will be made right. But not yet. Not yet. Some of you may have heard uh, years ago of a, a writer and a professor named Jerry <clears throat> Sitzer. He reflected on a loss in his life through a book that he wrote. One day he was driving in his car, a drunk driver coming the other way, plowed into him head on, and in an instant, out of the blue, he lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter. Three generations right there. And he did <clears throat> what many of us do when we have suffered severe loss. He, he wrote that he just replayed that seen a thousand times in his mind like and he wondered what if I had left 10 seconds earlier or, or later or what if we had driven a different route and he's like how can this horrible thing have happened and in his book he talks about the terror of randomness and what seems like just this random event that happened and then he wrote how he discovered over time that sometimes you never know why like you could spend your whole life and he says, that question doesn't get answered. But then he said, and this is what really struck me, another question came to him after he moved from why me, he asked, in the face of suffering and loss, why not me? And at first I kind of flinched at that, and I don't know if I've still fully processed it, but, but um, in other words, how can I assume that my life will not have suffering and hurt? Um, am I a better person, more deserving than a baby born to a starving family in Somalia? Like, how can I assume that I'm exempt? And he said, if he were going to weather the storm of this kind of loss, he wrote that, that he gradually realized the question was not, why me? But the question was, how will I respond? Which is the next question that I want us to look at. I want to look at the question, how does God invite me to respond to deep loss when the storms of life strike? And what I want to do is, is start out by addressing this, this question after having a drink of water. Um, I want to start out by, by talking about what the Bible does not say to do. Okay? There's a lot of confusion sometimes as people try to understand God and faith and suffering. But when you go through the storm of loss, the Bible does not say to pretend that it doesn't hurt. Scripture doesn't say that. See, a lot of us maybe grew up thinking that, you know, we, we ought to act like it doesn't hurt. And, and then by acting like it doesn't hurt, this is a sign of strength, um, and there is especially one particular gender that is prone to this, um, males, right? Um, but we, yeah. 
Yeah. But when we think about this particular question here, one of my favorite passages in, in the Gospels is Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And he's explaining in Scripture for the first time about the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. And in this, he says, blessed are the strong and tough and those who look like they have all the answers and have it all together, right? You guys know that verse, right? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't say that at all. Um, Jesus actually says, blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Like, that's a kingdom value, friends. Um, my friend Dave Johnson, who preached last week, he says it this way. He said, blessed are those who get what's in here out here. Those are the ones that get comfort and relief. You know, in some churches, people, I guess, get extra credit for being acting spiritual if something catastrophic happens and they, hey, they just take it in strive and they keep moving like it doesn't bother them. There can even in some places, not this place, but in some places, a pressure not to grieve and people, um, people can play a game, right? Now, when I was growing up, we would, uh, we would try, we would drive, like we had four kids eventually, so um, I didn't hit an airplane until I was in maybe college or just out of high school, okay? So we would drive everywhere. And I was one of four kids, and we'd get real weary. Anybody have to sit in the back seat and cram us all in? Yeah, anybody else relate? Just suffering together. Um, and on these road trips, we would ask those questions that, and they probably weren't that long, but they seem long when you're little. We'd ask the question that kids always ask, which is what? Oh, you guys are so smart. Same family here, right? And then we would lament, you know, the length of the trip and how cramped the quarters were and, and uh, we were too hungry or too hot or too cold. And... And on trips like that, <laughs> I was going to say this was my mom, but I'm pretty sure it was my big sister, and she would often say, hey, I have an idea. Why don't you play the quiet game, right? <laughs> you know what the quiet game is, how it's played, right? You know, just be quiet. Yeah, it's like simple game for a simple child, okay, all right. So for the quiet game, by the way, do you know how to win? Yeah, whoever's quietest the longest wins, right? So my big sister and my big brother, you know, they'd probably think, hey, wow, this is a great game. And they got a lot of mileage out of that stupid game, uh, <clears throat> my poor little sister and I. But I'll never forget this one day as we were driving along, we're playing the quiet game, and this wonderfully liberating thought occurred to me that I didn't have to play the quiet game. Like... <laughs> My parents, they weren't going to punish me if I didn't play anymore, but, but I thought even if they did get mad, nothing could be worse than just having to be quiet mile after mile. I mean, I, you know, I thought, hey, I'm 17 years old. I don't have to do this anymore. Right? <clears throat> okay, I wasn't quite 17 when that happened, and the last part of the story might not really have happened, but, but the quiet game, the quiet game. And, you know, even in churches, we often play the quiet game. Um, we encourage people to play the quiet game by pretending that it doesn't hurt, showing how strong they are through silence. And when people ask you how you're doing, you tell them how you're doing, you are just fine. fine. Yeah, we're fine. We're fine. And other people, they just get busy, right? They escape pain by watching TV, plunging into work, falling into addictive behavior, spending lots of money, there's all kinds of ways that we play the quiet game to just avoid it. 
And some people mistakenly think that being a good Christian means that we go through these losses and we play the quiet game. We don't grieve. It's like we're trying to like hydroplane over suffering and mourning. And I don't know where that idea comes from, but I will tell you one place that it does not come from. It doesn't come from the Bible. See, one of the most popular books of the Bible is the book of Psalms. There are 150 psalms, and these are songs or prayers to God, and they demonstrate for us how we can enter into praying and worshiping, and some of the psalms are expressing praise, and some of them express thanks. There's different genres of the types of psalms. Now, do you know what the most frequent type of psalm in Scripture is, what the genre is? Yeah, it's the psalm of lament, saying, God, why? How long? God, where are you? Why have you hidden your face from me, God? And if you just read through the Psalms sometime and notice the raw, unvarnished honesty, it's messy. It's messy, friends. There's another book in the Bible called the book of Lamentations. Anybody ever read that one? Yeah, that's not a cheery little book, is it? Right? Now, I bring this up, friends, because... because The God of the Bible is a very big God who is not threatened in the least by people expressing their anger or grief or hurt or loss. In fact, he encourages it. He says, bring it to me. Bring it all to me. Bring your hurt, your anger, your rage, your doubts, your fears, your questions. Bring it all before him. Because, friends, some of us have been playing the quiet game for far too long. Some of us have losses that we have not mourned or grieved, maybe tears we've never shed. And I just want to speak to you from my heart as a pastor. If that's you, friend, you need to to stop escaping or running away and turn and face the sadness. And I'm just keenly aware that the loss of Pastor Paul, for some of us, it's going to stir some unresolved areas of grieving and losses in our lives. And so probably what you need to do is find another person to sit and share it with, a a close friend, a family member, uh, maybe a counselor. Maybe you need to do what I'm going to do this week and just go somewhere and get alone. Maybe just stay after service and and pour your heart out to God today. Um, But will you commit, even right now, will you just commit in your heart that you are going to do that? Because that is so important. Blessed are those who mourn. Get from the inside to the outside. That's where the comfort comes. And by the way, some of us, maybe we're not going through something right now, but your mind is thinking of someone who's faced a tremendous loss, certainly the Thompson family, but, but whoever else is coming to your mind, maybe today you need to write a note, make a call, go get a gift, or, or, or just ask the person how they're really doing and, and, and really mean it. Like, don't let them leave you and, until they tell you, how, how are you really doing? Okay. And by the way, don't all of you do that to Mary, okay? It will drive her crazy, okay? <laughs> Understandably. Um, She's got some closer folks around her. But look for the people in your life that you know are going through some stuff. Like by showing care and concern, that's an act of love. And I don't think sometimes we realize the difference it makes in people's lives. I quoted this earlier in Romans 12, uh, 15. The Apostle Paul says, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. We mourn with those who mourn. 
interestingly, in this scripture, it's really interesting what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that you're supposed to give advice to those who mourn or give a theological explanation to those who mourn about why they are mourning. Paul does not say, go to those who mourn, tell them, hey, it's not so bad and it could be worse. He just says, mourn with them. And some of us need to go to somebody today, maybe at the funeral this afternoon, and just say, I am so sorry. Or I want you to know I'm thinking of you. Or even say, I don't know what to say, but I'm, I'm here for you. And sometimes the best thing you can do is not say anything at all and just embrace them. See, we mourn with those who mourn. Don't fix it. <laughs> Please don't spout some cliche. Just, just be with them. Be for them. Which brings me to the last question that I want to spend a few minutes on. And I think this question is one of the deepest questions that a human being living in this world of loss can ask. And this question is, where is God? Where's God? In the midst of pain and loss and suffering and in the presence of death and darkness that is a curse on our world, where is God? Like when our friend, our brother, our pastor Paul dies so quickly and it shocks us all. Where is, where is God? And I'll be honest, I have no easy answers for us. Because there's a lot about this that I just don't understand. I do know that some people see loss and pain and they see that there's suffering in the world. And they say, well, that means that there is no God at all. And maybe the existence of pain and suffering, that's a proof that there can't be a God. And I just want to say a word about that question. Because sometimes people wonder, you know, couldn't God have created a different kind of world where there was no pain, no suffering, everything would just go according to his plan? Like every day God just would write a script of what every person was going to do, no options, just the blueprint was already in place. I mean, God could have done a world, right, where there was no hurt, no suffering, no conflict. He could have created robots who were obedient in every detail, Yes, he, he could have done that. But God is so filled with love. God is love. He was so filled and is so filled with love that he wanted people, not robots. And, and only between people can there be freely expressed, lavish love. Love has to be chosen for it to actually be love. So in all his power, all his strength... God actually limited himself and gave us the ability to choose as persons. And this inevitably meant that people would be free to choose to disobey as well as obey. Uh, and people, if they wanted to, parents could neglect their children instead of loving them. Or instead of feeding poor people, rich people could steal from poor people. And the option means that instead of Nations befriending each other, they could go to war against each other. Those options were there. The Bible teaches that the fall, the coming of sin, the choice of disobedience, unleashed forces of death, pain, and suffering into our world. See, we humans were given uh, by God this planet, <laughs> and then we turned around in the Garden of Eden and handed it over to the enemy, and that's where sin and death entered in. 
And I want us to be really clear about God's heart in all of this. Like sometimes people misunderstand and think of God as this cruel character who just sends out pain, you know, like a, like a tornado or an accident, you know, a tornado that hits one house and skips the next. Or, or like, why did God do this to Paul, to Mary? What's he trying to teach us? And oh, oof, why? like uh, dangerous question and really missing the point kind of question. See, friends, this is a fallen world. God didn't cause that stuff. The enemy our fallen world did. God didn't take Paul. God didn't take your parent, your spouse, your friend, your child. See, evil still has an impact in this world. And until the kingdom of God fully comes, and it will one day, but until then, we still have sickness and tragedy and death. See, the Bible doesn't speak about death as a tool of God. It talks about death as the enemy of God. The Bible uses language uh, that, that death is the enemy, that God is unalterably and eternally opposed to it. So no matter what you might hear today or in the future from folks, death's not really a natural part of the life that God intended for us. It was not his original plan. It's not his final purpose for human beings. Death is, really is, in many ways, unnatural. It's, it's evil. And all you have to do is look at the body of someone who has died, and you'll know this is not God's plan for his creatures, for these people that he loves. So back to our question. So where is God? Well, the Bible says that God is with those who suffer. In one place that just jumped out to me, Matthew 25 that Jesus says that the day is going to come when all human beings will stand before him. And one of the things that will happen is that God the king will point to the suffering people, the poor, the, the hungry, the imprisoned. And then he will look at the rest of us and say, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. He stands with the suffering. And this is the message, my friends, the message of the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus took on himself more than just our guilt and sin. He took our suffering and pain. In, in the Gospels, Jesus is called the man of sorrows. In the Bible, it says he's the man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief, the prophets said of him. I mean, you think of all the gods throughout history that human minds have ever devised and ever worshipped only the God of the Bible is the God, the only God is the God of the Bible that suffers with and suffers for this suffering human race. Only the God of the Bible does that. A man named Nicholas Waltersdorf wrote a book on suffering called A Lament for a Son. He was a real bright guy. He uh, teaches, I still think he teaches at Yale. Uh, he wrote this on the occasion of his son, Eric's death. Um, his son had an accident at age 25 and died while climbing a mountain in Austria. And his dad wrote that the hardest thing about the death of his son was the finality of it. He wrote that he can hardly bring himself to, to look at pictures of Eric when he was a six-year-old little boy with a fish that was, you know, bigger than him. <laughs> but he knew walking now through life there would not be any new pictures of Eric to see anymore. And he wrote this. He said, it is said of God, and this is in scripture, that no man could behold his face and live. 
I always thought this meant no one could see God's splendor and live. But a friend said that perhaps it means no one can see God's sorrow and live. Or perhaps God's sorrow is his splendor. You see, he says, instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. And it makes me think that maybe one of the greatest things about God is that he would choose to suffer with us when he did not have to. So in our suffering, where is God? My friends, he's with you. And he chooses to suffer with you. Indeed, you are not alone. And as we move to the communion table, I want us to keep that in mind, that communion is a reminder of that, that Jesus is with you, with you. And it's also a promise of the future, what's going to happen one day, because the Bible says one day, the day is coming. It's not going to be today or tomorrow, but the day is going to come when this reality is finally true. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and he will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And the one sitting on the throne, Jesus said, I am making everything new.